to 19. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come from the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now that the crowd... Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Don. Morning, everyone. We continue in our journey through the Gospel of John, where we will be for the next couple of weeks, next Sunday, obviously, Resurrection Sunday, and then also the following Sunday, we'll be in John chapter 21, which is the Anzac weekend. Questions have been prepared for our connect groups and for you to take and to reflect on uh, from out of this passage, so I commend that to you. If you're a connect group leader, they would have been sent to you. Uh, last night, I think it was, and then uh, there are hard copies available over here near the notice board if you'd like to pick one up. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity we have to assemble, to study, to listen and to learn together, to discuss and reflect together. And I pray, Lord, that through this process, you would achieve your purposes, speak truth into our minds and hearts, and shape our lives according to your purposes and your will. 
we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus the King. There's nothing at the back. I need to see it at the back. Jesus the King on a donkey. And I called it that because Jesus is the King. But the next time Jesus comes, he won't be on a donkey. What's he going to be on? <coughs> a stallion. A white stallion. The difference, of course, between a donkey and a stallion is the war horse is that kings and conquerors would come riding in on a stallion to demonstrate their power and strength. In Israel, the custom was for the king, in fact, to ride a donkey because the king of Israel was not in charge. God was. And the donkey was to remind them of God's sovereign power. David rode a donkey. Solomon rode a donkey. Jehu rode a donkey. Jesus is riding a donkey for several reasons, but that's part of the cultural background to it. If a king, if a, an invading army conquered a city, then they likewise, if the conqueror rode a stallion into the city, that was a demonstration that he intended to decimate the city. He would destroy everybody inside of it. But if they rode a donkey in, that meant I come in peace. I've conquered you, but you're safe. Just a different cultural, historical way of doing it. Not that we tend to do that too much these days. Preliminary questions. What does it mean in this passage that we have looked at? What is the festival about? What is the nard that Mary uh, used? Um, what is the significance of all of that? Um, what is the meaning of the palm branches the people were waving? What does the word Hosanna mean? Um, why is it a donkey and not a horse? Partly alluded to that. There are other reasons. And who is in the crowds? If you read the text very carefully, you'll find out there's one large crowd, but there are different sections to this crowd. There are different dimensions to it that John wants us to take note of as we reflect on um, our response to what God is saying to us. Um, so we have a ways to go and things to learn. There are three feasts in ancient Israel. There are now five in modern day Israel because of the addition of some. But there were three feasts that God gave Israel. There was Passover, there was Pentecost, and there was Tabernacles. A couple of weeks ago in John chapter 7, we were looking at Tabernacles. That was at the end of the harvest. It's about six months apart from Passover and Tabernacles. Tabernacles is where they cut down trees and branches and they build their own little booths and tents and had a great time. It was a highly celebratory time, probably the highest in terms of joy and celebration, end of the harvest, end of a year's hard work and just joy and thankfulness to God. The Passover was also a large, significant festival, but it was more solemn. It was more serious. It was more reflective. There was great joy still. They would come to the, uh, to the city of Jerusalem, particularly if you lived within 25 uh, kilometres of Jerusalem. You was mandatory for all males to attend it. But whole families would come and every B&B &B and motel and hotel in Jerusalem would be booked out, obviously, and so they would overflow the city. Josephus, who was a historian, Roman Jewish, but writing for the Romans, several years later records the number of lambs that were killed at Passover to be 256,000. A lot of lambs. When you realise it's one lamb per 10 people, that's 2.5 million people. Given the fact that Josephus also likes sometimes to exaggerate, so let's just tone it down. Jerusalem is a city of around about 80 to 100,000 at about this time. 
Um, so it's not a large, large city like Brisbane or London or New York. Don't think that. It's a smaller city. Um, but at Passover time and at festival times, those numbers would swell to a million or over a million. So 10 times the number of people. Imagine if you left here today and you got on the road and suddenly there was 10 times the amount of traffic. That's what it would be like. There were people everywhere. And they're on the, on the hills and they've got the guitars out and they're singing songs and hymns. And one of the psalms they would be singing, all of the songs of ascent, psalms of ascent, was Psalm 118, uh, which is what gets quoted in this very chapter. That's where Hosanna comes from. There are four Gospels we know, and the four Gospels all refer to this story. The writing of Jesus riding the donkey into Jerusalem. Um, three of the Gospels also talk about Mary and what she did. Luke talks about a different woman. That's not Mary in Luke chapter 7. There is noticeable differences. But all of the Gospels have structured their Gospel in such a way that at the beginning, it's rather rapid and the years fly by very quickly. And then as you get to the end, this last year of Jesus' life, and particularly this last week, everything slows down. And instead of noticing months go by or seasons going by rapidly, and you get something from there and something from here, in the last week of Jesus, we notice each day. And even down to the very last day, we notice even the hours. The detail is there for us. And each of the gospel writers do that. This is John chapter 12, and we're already at the last week. We still have 10 chapters to go before John is finished. And if you look at Mark or Matthew or Luke, you'll find the same thing. Anything from a third to half of the gospel is spent on the last week, because that's the significance that the writer wants us to draw note to, the significance of why Jesus came. Um, we're all used to entrances coming into the city uh, or into whatever. Jesus usually and normally avoided publicity. He went out of his way. He would often, in fact, direct people to be quiet. Don't tell anybody. If he healed somebody, if he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, shh, don't tell anybody. Go to the priest, show them, get checked out medically, you know, but keep it to yourself. And if demons would shout out, we know who you are, he would command them to be quiet and he would leave and go away to quiet places. <coughs> Excuse me, he was often doing that. He was avoiding the limelight, wasn't seeking it because he, he was clearly focused upon the reason why he came. But on this occasion, Jesus deliberately stages a grand entrance. This is deliberate, this donkey ride into Jerusalem. It's premeditated, pre-planned, it's organised. Jesus, in fact, arranged it. He's spoken to the owners of the donkeys beforehand. He set it up for them that in a few days, in a little while, then I'm going to send a couple of my disciples and we're going to borrow the donkeys. And the owner says, that's okay. And it's code language. Jesus says, they will ask you, if you object and say, what are you doing untying the donkeys? Then they will answer by saying, the Lord needs it. That will be the clue that it's me and let them have the donkeys. And sure enough, that's basically what happens. So why is Jesus doing this grand entrance? We're used to grand entrances. We've experienced them in our life. We've seen them uh, even in our world and publicly. You may not have seen, seen this personally. Some of you may have, but I've certainly seen footage and uh, of like when the war is over 
and the troops are returning home and the people line the streets and they celebrate. We see it with our Olympians when they return from the Olympic Games and they're victorious. We see it when celebrities come to town. We see it on our TVs with royal uh, weddings and coronations and things. There's the streets aligned with people and there's this sense of celebration and joy. We're used to those sorts of grand events. This one from Jesus ranks up there with it. Maybe not of the same size numerically, but I tell you what, the next one will be better than all of them. When he comes on that white stallion at the last day and the angels will announce his coming and the trumpet will blast and the dead will rise, every eye will see him. Um, so we're used to it. So the crowd has come together, this one, two, whatever, million people, and Jesus is going to deliberately stage this entry for these five reasons. Number one, to fulfil prophecy. We'll come back to that. Um, Jesus knows what it says in Zechariah. <clears throat> and it's, he is fulfilling it hand in glove to say, what is predicted is referring to me. And what I'm doing now is fulfilling that prophecy. I am your Messiah. But I don't come to conquer like you expected. I come to conquer spiritually, a much bigger issue. He does this to reveal his identity. Blessed is the, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus is saying, I am that king. It's also an example for us, which I'll come back to in a minute, of what Jesus did by riding the donkey and not riding a big stallion declaring war and being aggressive is a model for us. In the world that we live in, that's how we are to follow him as his disciples. But primarily, I think, Jesus does this deliberately to provoke the Sanhedrin to act. They've been threatening to arrest him and to kill him, and he's always been avoiding it. He's always been walking through their mist and going, and nobody can lay a hand on him. Why? Because his time had not yet come. Well, the time had come. This is now the last week. This is six days before Passover. This is Sunday. By Friday, he will die on Calvary's cross. And so the time had come. The time had come for him to die for the sins of the world. The time had come for the true Passover lamb to be slain. <coughs> Excuse me. The time has come for the blood of the covenant, the blood of the atonement to be shed, for the Messiah to be cut off. The time has come for the way into the holy place to be opened and for the true high priest to be revealed. So he places himself centre stage, spotlights on him, and he says, here I am, do your worst. All part of God's plan, God's will. And Jesus is just walking in harmony with that. If we look at the sequence of the events, that's going to help us in our reflection and our understanding of what John has written for us. So the sequence of the events goes something like this. For three years, Jesus has been ministering. We're now getting into the third year and towards the end of it. And in John chapter 11, Jesus is one of his best friends, Lazarus, dies. And his two sisters, Mary and Martha, live in Bethany along with Lazarus. And Jesus goes there, raises him from the dead. You know the story, John chapter 11. Um, and as a result of that resurrection, and there were other people, other Jewish people there who had gone to comfort uh, Mary and Martha. Because there was an audience and Jesus did that deliberately, that was like 
the brakes being applied to the train coming into the station, if you like, everything starts to slow down. And in another, for the gospel writers, and in another sense, everything starts to heat up from the Jewish leader's point of view. It's the last straw. He's got to go. We have to get rid of him. And so you read at the end of um, John chapter 11, Jesus therefore no longer moved about publicly among the people. Instead, he withdrew to a little village called Ephraim. Um, the people kept looking for him and kept asking the question, because the Passover is coming, do you think he'll come to the feasts? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where he was should report it so that they might arrest him. So there's a public arrest notice out on Jesus. And so that he's now on everybody's lips. People are talking about him. So Jesus has gone off to a little place called Ephraim. Days pass, weeks pass. Passover's drawing near. This is the last Passover for the Lord Jesus. And so he starts to move with his disciples from Ephraim, joins the other travellers who are going up towards Jerusalem. So you travel in this caravan, in this group of people as you're moving along. As he approaches the city of Jerusalem, he comes to Bethany, which is about two miles or so from Jerusalem. He pulls off from the caravan, all these people going to Jerusalem, with his disciples, and he goes to visit Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who's now raised from the dead. This is a Friday, probably, Thursday, Friday. And so the people who are travelling with him, they keep going to Jerusalem, and when they get to Jerusalem, they're able to say... Do you think Jesus is coming to the festival? And they would be able to say, he's just at Bethany. We were walking with him. So he's not far. So yes, we expect him to be coming. And there were other people amongst the crowd, John tells us in chapter 12, that had been to Bethany when Lazarus was raised. They're all now so also part of the crowd. And they're talking about the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. They're talking about Jesus. And they're talking about how Jesus walked with them. And now he's at Bethany. And now some of these people decide, I'm going to go see Jesus. And John, in fact, tells us in John chapter 12 and verse 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of the Jews found out that Jesus was there in Bethany, and they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So now some of the crowd who are in Jerusalem and there for the Passover, they've arrived early, six days before the Passover, for the cleansing and purification rites that they would go through to get ready for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Some of that crowd come to Bethany. And when they get to Bethany, they find out that there's a dinner being held in honour of Jesus and in thanks, gratitude for Lazarus being raised from the dead. Mary, uh, Martha is serving Mary is in her room somewhere in a chest of drawers or something, fossicking through stuff, looking for a jar of something. Lazarus is reclining with Jesus. And it's not their house, it's the house of a man called Simon the leper. Simon the ex-leper also lives in Bethany. And Jesus probably had healed him of his leprosy. So it's in his house. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there to honour Jesus and to give thanks for Lazarus being brought back to life. Mary finds what she's looking for, and it's a jar, a very expensive perfume, ointment, pure nard, pure spikenard, which comes from the Himalayas. 
um, northern India and the mountains of the Himalayas. And so it would have been harvested and then bought, transported on camelback all the way across, hundreds of miles. So it was incredibly expensive and highly pungent. One of the understatements in all of the Gospels is what John says in John chapter 12, um, in verse 3. She pours this very expensive perfume ointment uh, on the feet of Jesus and she wipes the excess with her hair, spreading it evenly, I guess. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Oof. And not only would it have gone through the house, it would have lingered on the person of the Lord Jesus for days, maybe even for the whole week, that he would be smelling that and other people would be smelling it. It was a wonderful gift, a very expensive gift. And of course, Judas objects, pretends to be humanitarian and concerned for the poor people and so on, but he's just a thief. He wants... He even calculates how much is it worth. 300 days wages, a year's wages, a bit over a year. Pretty expensive. And Jesus says, leave her alone. She's kept that for the day of my burial. Mary knows something is going on. Mary knows somehow that she's not going to have the opportunity to anoint Jesus at his burial. So she takes the opportunity when she has it. And she expresses her love and devotion to her master, to her Lord. That's what love does. It's lavish, it's generous, it expresses, here's the best thing that I own and I'm giving it to you. That's what the Lord looks for from us, the giving of our whole selves, that which is best for us. Anyway, Jesus, Judas objects and Jesus says, you know, leave her alone. This story is going to be told of her wherever the gospel is preached. And here we are 2,000 years later, we're still talking about her. It's an amazing story. The crowd come, they witness all of that. The next day is Sunday, because Sabbath, Friday night till Sunday night, dinner Saturday night. The next day, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. So the crowd now that have come to Bethany move with Jesus. So this crowd is moving with Jesus and going to Jerusalem. Somehow, somebody's probably run ahead or something, some of the crowd in Jerusalem have heard he's on his way. So the crowd in Jerusalem, some of them, they gather, they get up immediately, they cut down palm branches, they take their cloaks and they run out to meet him. So this crowd is moving this way and Jesus is coming from Bethany. He's walking with the crowd that's there. These people are approaching him. They didn't see him yet, but they're waving palm branches and they're putting, uh, prepared to put their cloaks on the ground in a minute and they're singing out stuff, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord and so on. So there's that crowd. There's another crowd that are still back in Jerusalem or, or around Jerusalem and they're the ones who had seen about, heard about Lazarus and so on. Some of them come. There's another group and that's the Pharisees. They don't move. They don't like this. And so they're opposing it. Um, and we'll come back to them in a moment. So there's these different groups and dimensions of what's going on. When Jesus gets to the point of Bethphage, which is on the last ridge before you come down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem, he's coming up that last ridge. He sends two disciples into Bethphage. 
Go in there or you'll find a donkey and a donkey's colt. Bring them to me. If someone says to you, what are you doing? Say to them, the Lord needs them and they will let you bring them. And they did. They go and get the donkeys. They come back. They put their cloaks on it as a saddle, I guess. Jesus sits on the young one, the baby one, the colt. Never been ridden before. Jesus sits on the donkey. So when he ascends the ridge before going down the Mount of Olives, the people coming this way, waving their palm branches, how do they see Jesus? Riding on a donkey. What does that mean? Did they understand it? What did the palm branches mean? Well, 200 years before, a guy by the name of Simon Maccabeus and Judas Maccabeus, they, you can read about it in the book of Maccabees, um, the Syrians had invaded Israel, conquered it, Antiochus Epiphanes, and they'd sacrificed a pig on the altar and defiled everything and were ruling and oppressive. And the Jews got sick of it. They rose up in rebellion. And under the Maccabees, they removed them. They kicked them out. And the people celebrated spontaneously by waving palm branches 200 years, 150 years before this. And from that day, it lived in Jewish memory. It was on their coins um, and it was their symbol. When they cut down a palm branch, then it was like an uh, an immediate flag, an instant flag that you could wave. The Department of Parks and Gardens in Jerusalem wouldn't be too happy about it, I'm sure. Um, And there would have been a mess. You ever been to a footy match and after the crowd's left, the mess that's left? Well, the crowd would have left all of these palm branches all over the place. And when they come out, they're shouting, Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? Come on, somebody knows. What does it mean? Close. What does it mean? (laughs) You're in the first service. Save us now. Save us now. Deliver us. Rescue us. Save us now. And in some contexts, certainly, Hosanna can be like an acclamation of praise because context always determines the meaning of a word. But technically, the Hebrew word, the Greek word, and so the English translation is, save us now. It's a revolutionally radical call. Jesus, the coming one, the one who is the best leader, you can raise the dead, save us now from the Romans, ride in on the donkey. You're the king, we proclaim you to be the king of Israel. Deliver us now. (coughs) Excuse me, so they're whipping. The crowd's being whipped up into a frenzy and Jesus is riding a donkey, which is what kings rode. But he rode a donkey because he came in peace. He didn't come to conquer. He came to destroy Satan and sin. He didn't come to destroy the Romans. They wanted a conquering Messiah because they had their own political materialistic agenda. Jesus had a far different and far more important agenda. So here is the prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling, Zechariah 9.9. John quotes for it. Um, I don't put verse 10 up there, but it goes with it. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. He is righteous and victorious, or he is righteous and has salvation with him. It can be translated. He is lowly, humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is saying, That prophecy is now being fulfilled. He's not saying anything, but he's visually communicating body language. I'm him. 
I am the long-awaited promised Messiah. It's me. And how do the people respond to him? Well, they misunderstand it, don't they? How does Jesus respond to all of the crowds who are going berserk with shouting Hosanna and waving things? And Matthew, John doesn't tell us, but Matthew tells us they even took off their outer cloaks, their garments, and they put that on the ground in front of them. Why did they do that? Well, it was dusty. Um, Unofficial red carpet type thing, maybe. Human nature hasn't changed that much. When we go to major events, what do we do? If you went to the Australian Open or if you went to the Grand Prix or if you went to a grand final or something like that, what would you do? Probably. Try to get a signature. Try to get some memento. So some commentators think that's what this is about. The people are laying their cloaks on the ground because the donkey's going to tread on it and then that'll be a memento of this incredible event and they'll be able to hold it up. It'll become their good luck coat. That's like... There is the hoof mark that on the donkey that Jesus rose, and there is the dust. It's still on it. They, th- they think that's what's behind it, just human nature, wanting a memento. Or perhaps there's another meaning, and I'm, this is my guess. Maybe it's a way of demonstrating we submit to you. All that we have, we lay at your feet, and we're here to serve. We're joining ranks behind you, and we're going to get rid of the Romans. Could be saying something like that. Um, How does Jesus respond to all of this hype um, and stuff? Well, he stays very clearly focused upon God's will and God's purpose for him. When Jesus got to the gates of gate of Jerusalem and he went in, if he had turned right, he would have gone, gone to the fortress of Antonio, which is where the Roman garrisons were stationed. If he was going to declare war and remove the Romans, he would have turned right. He came into the gate and he went left. And to the left is the temple. And he went to the temple. And he looks around, Mark tells us. And when he looked around, then he went out. And he went back to Bethany. Crowd with palm branches. Where's he going? Palm branches throwing on the ground. We thought you were the king who were coming to conquer. And it doesn't happen. It's anticlimactic. They're disillusioned. How does Jesus respond to that? He stays focused on doing exactly what God's will for him is. And that's um, the focus for us. He came to defeat Satan, to break the chains of sin and to set us free. He overlooks the hype and the crowd and the pressure of what people want him to do. He stays focused on doing what God wants him to do. That's a good lesson for us, isn't it? It's an example for us. When we were away at camp, camp, at um, the convention this week, I didn't bring my phone. One of the sessions we did, one of the electives I did was with Rhonda was to do with how do you get, with the rising tsunami type wave that's coming at us in our culture, as Christian beliefs and values are being downtrodden and pagan beliefs are being raised up quite intentionally, how do we respond appropriately as Christians? How do we respond theologically and pastorally? How do we speak the truth in such a way, but it's also with love and grace? that they can receive it. What do we do and how do we say it? It was that session talking about sexuality and gender issues with all of the hype of um, homosexuality and uh, gender change. And we got home and then Rhonda got a text from somebody else and quoting, in Florida, 
before state legislature, there is now, and in line with state legislature, this teacher is now saying, I will no longer be calling you he, she. I will not address you as mother, father, or anything that will identify you by any other agenda. You won't be Mrs. and you won't be Mr. You'll be MX, mix. Mix this, mix that, mix Vivian and mix Michael and so on. And all books that refer to he, she, mother, father, I'll remove from the classroom. We are now to have a completely neutral language. How many genders are there? If you think there's two, you are ignorant Bible-believing Christians. <laughs> Don goes, yep, nailed it in one. <laughs> uh, there's 56. What? And climbing. Different distinctions. It's LGBTQAI+. Don't forget the plus. They haven't finished yet. There's an agenda. Somebody's pushing this stuff. My question is, and the question of this elective was, how do we respond to that? Well, this story, this example of the Lord Jesus provides for us an example of the way forward for us. In that elective, I didn't say this in the first congregation, but in the elective, the guy giving it said, what biblical references come to mind, for instance, when we talk about, let's say, homosexuality and um, same-sex marriage and all of that? What's a verse? And I sang out and I said, 1 Corinthians 5.20. I think it's, I hope it's that, that's what I said. He said, okay, what's that? I said, that's where the Apostle Paul is dealing with a, a guy who had a sexual issue, you know, a man sleeping with his father's mother, wife. And Paul says, you have to discipline him and remove him from the church. Church does that and so on. And then, um, in, is it verse 20? Are you looking at it? No. Ah. We're looking at 72 genders now. So, While you're preparing sermons. <laughs> Thanks for the update. <laughs> Before we finish, it might be 80-something. It is. It's yeah. I, I love the quote. I just got to get this out of me. Yeah. I love the quote. Somebody said... All of this gender change stuff and sex operations to change, it is all nonsense. Acknowledging that for some people, you know, a very small percentage, but nonetheless, for some people, this is very real. It is a real issue for them. But for the vast majority of people, they're caught up in something else that's going on, or whatever it is. But the reality is, that body that you want to do a sex change operation on, put it in the ground, and 100 years from now, the DNA that the creator put into that body will raise it, male or female. There are only two genders. So how do we say this? How do we communicate the truth to our secular, increasingly secular society? Well, this way. People around us certainly have a worldly agenda and there is a cultural war going on, suppressing our Christian values, denying it, and tolerance of everybody and everything except Christianity and biblical truth. Um, but we are not to mount a war horse. We are not to go to war against them. Jesus didn't. Um, we are not to mount a war horse and to attack our sinful, deluded or whatever neighbours who don't know the truth. 
We, like Jesus, should minister the truth to them in humble, loving gentleness. You minister the truth, you say what the Bible says, but you do it with an attitude of gentleness, you know, respect and humbling. We will face increasing hostility in our secular society. Albert Moller calls it a tsunami that is coming. And I won't escape it, but I think my grandkids are going to grow up in the midst of this. The world is going mad. So what do we do in the midst of it? Excuse me. We need to resist the temptation to push back, to be aggressive, to attack. Not to do that, but to reflect the Lord Jesus, to represent the King of peace in truth and love. We present the truth, biblical truth. We don't deny it. We don't compromise truth. But we do it with patience, with grace, and with a concern for their salvation, which is ultimately the more important issue. Remember Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem. He had all power, but he came in peace because his agenda was spiritual. So is ours. So is ours. And our hope is in God, the sovereign God. We need to move on. There are various perspectives in this story. Firstly, here is one that John alludes to several times. The disciples didn't get it. Verse 16 says very clearly that they participated in this. They even went and got the donkey, but they didn't know what it meant. And they didn't know what it meant until after the resurrection when the Holy Spirit came and the Holy Spirit enlightened them and gave them truth. So too for us, God is at work and often we won't know just like they didn't know. We won't know what God's doing, how he's using us, how he's working through us, some of the things we say, some of the things we do, the influences we will have, we don't know. So what do we need to do? We need to make it our daily business to simply serve the Lord, to be obedient to him, to keep his word, to rely on his grace. In every situation at work, be his representative, his follower. Uh, at home, at play, with your neighbours and in church. Be loyal and faithful to him. Yep. Second perspective. There are those people in the crowd who had heard about Lazarus and so on and they were caught up in the hype of it all and they had their agenda and they wanted to use Jesus and his power to achieve their goal. So do some people today. They're not following Jesus. They're using Jesus to achieve their goals. Jesus is not their king. They're in charge and they're using Jesus. These people have a, a broad supportive attitude towards Jesus but they don't bow the knee and confess him as Lord. And so it's not surprising that the same sorts of people who have a shallow understanding of who Jesus is and a very shallow commitment to follow him can be quite easily swayed by other influences to in fact turn on him. And that's what happens. The crowd that went out who shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's on Sunday, on Friday, they're saying, crucify him. How could you have such a big change? Well, because they'd been exposed to false evidence false testimony by people. They'd been exposed to certain authorities whom they respected, who changed their mind and they didn't check it out. And they wanted to do certain things. Their agenda was to get rid of the Romans and Jesus wasn't doing it. So question, I know people who once followed Jesus who don't now. I'm sure you do too. 
question. Who are they listening to? And what do they want to do that makes them disconnect from Jesus? Who are they listening to? Who's the influence? Who's the voice in their ear? It could be a scientist, could be a politician, could be a philosopher. Who are they listening to? And what do they want to do which they know is not part of God's will for them? That's why people abandon Jesus, driven by their own agendas. If you want Jesus to bless your life, then he has told us very carefully what we are to do. To you want to follow him, then deny yourself, take up your cross daily and come follow him. Then you'll experience life now and life abundant. If you don't do that, Jesus says, you'll lose your life. You'll lose in the end. If not in this life, certainly the next. And then, of course, there are the Pharisees who were there. That's another perspective. They're jealous and sick of Jesus and they're not waving flags, got their arms crossed and they're cranky and so on. The chief priest had in fact decided not just to kill Jesus, but to get rid of Lazarus because he was being used by God to bring people to Jesus. In the midst of all of this, God was working. He's the one who was behind the scenes and he still is. Look at this, Acts chapter two. This same crowd, 50 days later now, in Jerusalem, Pentecost, Peter stands up and there he's preaching to the people and says, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Jesus turns on the stage with the donkey and says, center stage, here I am, do your worst. Because that was part of God's plan. God working out his purposes. And you, by your own free will, with the help of wicked people, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. What they did was wrong. But God allowed it. Because it achieved another purpose. That's one of the ways that God works. Herod Pontius, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles. The people of Israel in this city, this is the apostle still speaking, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, praying to God. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Doesn't catch God by surprise. How many genders? 70, what? Six? 72. 72 agendas, people say. God does, not surprised. Not phased by it, not fussed by it. He stays the course. And he's given us his word so that we can stay the course. So this is a light to enlighten our way and our path as we follow him. And the amazing thing is, what Jesus started back then, he hasn't finished. He is coming again. He will come on the white stallion. Until then, until that last day, he still approaches, but he approaches gently on the donkey. He invites us to respond to him, to surrender our control to him, to submit our will to him, to serve him as he requires. But on that last day, we can do this voluntarily and willingly now, but on the last day, it'll be compulsory. It'll be obligatory. The dead will rise. Everybody will stand before him. And at the mention of his name, every knee will bend. Every knee will bend. Even the rebels, even those who defy him, even those who are pagan in their expressions of sexuality now, will bend the knee and they will confess, you are Lord. So we have a choice now, to confess him as king or to go our own way. 
So, question, let's finish. What has God shown you this morning? Which part of this story has God challenged you with or shown you or revealed to you? Is Jesus your king of everything? Not just king of some parts of your life, but king, ruler, lord, sovereign. What are you going to take away from the passage? What are you going to keep thinking about and working on and meditating upon so that you can be not just a hearer, but a doer? of what God wants you to do. Some questions are available for you that add to that. Grab a copy. Keep talking about it. Let's finish our service. Let's stand together and we're going to pray together. Let's stand. Let's bow together. Just think about that for 15 seconds. What did God say to me? this morning Father I pray that you would continue to work and to speak truth into our lives give us wisdom Lord to know how that we can represent you in all of the conversations we will be having Go before us in the days of this week. Open our eyes to your divine appointments. Help us to be um, doing your business each day, serving you faithfully. And even when we can't see the results, Lord, help us to continue to trust and hope in you. And now may the God of hope fill each of us with joy and peace as we trust in him so that we might together overflow with hope by the power of his spirit who indwells us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless everybody. Please be seated.